uh, what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, the scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests, tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with the rebels and uh, rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they would release Barabbas instead of, uh, to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one that you call the king of the Jews? And again they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. After having Jesus flogged, he handed them over to be crucified. Him over to be crucified. Let's pray. God, we pray that uh, we would see Jesus in a more magnificent light today. That his trial and the precursor to his crucifixion would be uh, pleasing in not only your sight again, but also in ours, that we would see uh, the many ways in which we need him and how he is an all-sufficient Savior and friend for every aspect of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. So real courtrooms are nothing like the movies. Uh, and in the movies, every second of the courtroom, from the time that the lawyers enter the building to uh, well after the verdict is reached, reach, it's filled with just this intense drama. Um, the courtrooms are ornate. The characters are always lively. The dialogue is engaging and, and stimulating, and, and it seems like everything seems to hang on every single little word. I could probably watch the movie A Few Good Men more times than I care to admit. Uh, My Cousin Vinny is a classic uh, courtroom dramedy. And even though the, adapt the adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird was, you know, way back in 1962, it still is a very, very good uh, adaptation and a, and, a, and, a good, uh, and a good movie. Get me some Matt, Matlock, man. Get me some Judge Wapner. I love me some courtroom drama. But... Uh, when I've sat in actual court cases or watched them on television, I found that they're nothing like the movies. Courtrooms are not usually as ornate and as beautiful as you would think that they 
they would be. Um, the, the, the courtrooms, the ones that I have been in, have never been full. The things you see in the movies, are the, the, the areas are packed, and they're, they're nothing like that. Uh, they aren't filled with dramatic dialogue. There aren't melodramatic shouts of, Objection, Your Honor! You don't hear that. You hear a lot of objections, but not in that sort of way. The lawyers don't pace back and forth. They generally stay in one spot. They don't approach the witness. They don't typically approach the jury. You're, you're not really on the edge of your seat. Even in cases like the O.J. Simpson trial or the Casey Anthony trial or the recent Murdoch trials, uh, trial, the, the, the viral big moments are pretty few and far between, and you'd have to watch a lot of courtroom in order to see those, uh, those, those moments of, of intensity. Real courtrooms with real cases are essentially boring. They use big words that I don't understand. Latin words like habeas corpus and omnibus. They push things back and they schedule a lot of meetings. And anyone that wants to go to a law school because they want to get in on the action of a courtroom should go sit at the Kennebec County Courthouse for a while and see how exciting it is. Our text today, though, gives us a front row seat into a courtroom unlike any other that you will ever see in a movie or in the Kennebec County Courthouse. Uh, it gives us a glimpse into a case that is far more uh, culturally important than the O.J. Simpson trial. It has way more consequences than the Derek Chauvin trial or the Bernie Gates or Amanda Knox or Timothy McVeigh. They have nothing even comes close to this here. Our text today brings us right into the court of the house of the Roman prefect named Pilate in the year 33 A.D., and the consequence changed the course of human history. What happened on that morning has far-reaching consequences for not only the world, but also your very life. Today we're making our way toward Easter by looking at the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And as we look at this trial, we must resist the temptation to see this only as a historical narrative to fill our heads, but rather as a narrative to fill our hearts and to change our lives. And we can do that in two ways. The first is, is that we need to look upon King Jesus. Look upon King Jesus. So after focusing here on Peter's denial at the end of chapter 4, I'm sorry, at, at the end of uh, chapter 14, uh, Mark brings us back to Jesus, who has just been found guilty of blasphemy by what we would consider sort of the Supreme Court of Israel, which was the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin. And it was really sort of a kangaroo court, and according to Jewish law, the, the, the proper punishment for blasphemy is execution. But because they are under the thumb of the Roman Empire, they are not allowed to execute. Um, and so here, uh, they uh, were to bring themselves to the Roman leaders in order to have that. Verse 1 here gives us the impression that once a verdict had been reached, they held a meeting for a little while to figure out what they were to, to do with this Jesus. And it appears that the best solution that they could find was to bind him up make him look like a civil criminal, 
and hand him over to the Roman government to see if they could manipulate this prefect named Pontius Pilate. Verse 1 tells us that they waited till the morning. That was when the Roman courts would typically open up. They would want to get the court cases done in the morning so that the leaders of, of the, the court and, and the aristocracy there could go and have a leisurely afternoon after being in session for a while. Um, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, Pilate was the perfect person to send Jesus to. Not only did he have execution rights, but he was also politically helpful. The only reason, the sole reason that he was even in Jerusalem at this time is because it was the week of the Passover, and he was there to make sure that no riot started, that no uprisings uh, happened, that he could keep the peace within Jerusalem. And so if, G- if Jesus' disciples were to rise up and have a problem and take issue with what's going on, well, Pilate would have none of that. He would take care of the disciples quickly. Now, Pilate was no friend to the Jews by any means, and his sins, which were many, were treacherous. Luke 13 tells us that there was a report to Jesus that Pilate had executed some of the Jews and actually mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices inside the temple. Historians tell us that, uh, that at the time he had invited legions of Roman soldiers to Jerusalem in order to put up banners within the temple walls proclaiming Caesar as Lord. Pilate was responsible for making a 23-mile aqueduct in order to bring water into Jerusalem, which you would think is a good thing, but the only way that he funded that aqueduct was by taking and stealing money from the temple. This man was, was absolutely no friend of the Jews, but the Jewish leaders certainly saw him as politically helpful in this instance, at least. And apparently the old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend is actually true here in this particular uh, verse. So Jesus ends up coming under the custody here of Pilate, who has probably heard of Jesus and his fame, and now has good reason to be uh, skeptical of Jesus. Verse 2, Pilate cuts right to the chase. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now that's an interesting question, because that is not why the Sanhedrin uh, condemned him. He was condemned for blasphemy, not for being a king. But this was the only thing that they could throw, uh, throw against the wall to make it stick. But Pilate wouldn't care one bit about what this person thinks about blasphemy. He was a political leader. So why would a Roman prefect care whether or not someone blasphemed the Jewish God? So in asking whether he was the king of the Jews... Uh, we have to infer that the leaders then were making up charges against Jesus that they willingly knew were not true in order to get him crucified. So whereas the charge of blasphemy wouldn't catch his attention, threatening the leadership of Caesar would. Political sedition and treason are justifiable reasons to execute a man like this. And Jesus' answer here is quite baffling. It's taken me, honestly, years to figure it out. And I'm not 
all that confident that I've got it correct now in answering the question, are you the king of the Jews? Notice in verse 3, Jesus responds by saying, you say so. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean by that? Does he simply mean what you said is true? It can't be. Because if that's what it means, then there will be immediate conviction. Is he flippantly saying, as some of us would, well, you know, if you say so, and he can't be saying that either because there is not a hint of arrogance in Jesus' character. The only thing that I can imagine that's going on here is that Jesus is inviting Pilate into further personal exploration as to who Jesus is. Jesus' answer is simple. It's not affirming. It's not denying. It's a simple figure it out. And what it will eventually lead Pilate to ask in John chapter 18, what is truth? Now imagine that for, for just a second, that Jesus goes before Pilate. And how quickly it changes. Are you a seditious insurrectionist poser that is a threat to Rome ends up turning into questioning his entire existence and the reality of who Jesus is. So here we see that uh, Pilate goes from being a Roman lackey and a Jewish tool to one who momentarily wonders who truly is this Jesus. And Jesus is still inviting us into that conversation today. When we truly have an encounter with Jesus, it forces us to consider exactly who he is and what he has come to do. Is Jesus just some radical religious fanatic? That, uh, uh, that got what was coming to him. Well, if so, then it has no bearing on my life whatsoever. If Jesus is rather a certifiable lunatic and got swept away in his own delusion, then the entire fabric of our history and society has been built on a sham. But if he is the king of the Jews, well, then he is Lord over all, and I must bend my understanding of truth and reality and all things to him and put him in the center of my life. Pilate may have been initially trying to weigh the scales of justice, but notice here that he quickly realizes that it is Jesus who is weighing the scales here of justice. You may come to Jesus with all sorts of, of preconceived notions or conclusions or judgments, but make no mistake, when you encounter Jesus, it is not you who is in the position of prosecutor. It is Jesus. And if we want to truly know him and who he is, 
It requires nothing less than the complete recalibration of everything that we know to be true and right. We will see the world differently. We will see ourselves differently. We will see our relationships differently. We will see our work in a different way. Everything must change when we encounter Jesus. And so you can imagine the intensity here in the room. Jesus was being grilled by Pilate. Pilate was being dumbfounded at Jesus. And and the chief priests are, are, are desperately trying their hardest to get something on this man. Look at verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. Obviously, blasphemy didn't work. And sedition and treason aren't working. Luke 23 tells us that uh, they throw out a lie on Jesus' view on taxes. That, that he told his people, no, you don't need to pay Caesar, which isn't the truth. Some of the other things that they may very well have accused him of were violations of the Mosaic law or disrupting the peace at the temple, or destruction of temple property when he turned over the tables, or terroristic threats of of destroying the temple when he said, I will destroy this temple and in three days rebuild it, or undermining the religious and civil authority. This is a classic case of an all-too-common problem of a person or a group when they feel threatened by an individual so much that they will twist and make up anything to make the object that they are against look bad. Don't be surprised in your commitment to the truth that you are slandered and misrepresented by the people who are threatened by you. In light of these accusations, Pilate again turns to Jesus, who apparently has not even made an attempt to defend himself. Look in verse 4. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. So the fact that Jesus remained silent completely baffled Pilate. People are generally very quick to justify themselves. You can go to any prison in the state or in the country right now, and if you interview the prisoners, you will find that most of them are innocent, according to them. They will justify any reason, and you and I are no different. We'll find any reason to justify ourselves. But Jesus doesn't enter a guilty plea. He doesn't provide an alibi or an explanation. He just stays quiet. Why? This is not a silence of defeat or defiance. This is a silence of surrender to the sovereignty of God. For as much as the Jewish leaders want to believe that they are in control here, and as much as Pilate is convinced that the buck stops with him, Jesus knows different. He doesn't answer to religious or uh, political leadership. He answers to God the Father. And by being silent here, he is fulfilling the role that the Father set out for him from the foundation of the earth. 
In Isaiah 53, that said that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, was silent before his shears, and he would not open his mouth. In his silence, he is preparing for his coronation. And this is a coronation that would be like, unlike any other. He would march to his throne, not with a golden crown or a scepter in his hand, but with a crown of thorns digging into his forehead and a wooden beam across his shoulders. King Jesus was taking his rightful place as king of the world and king of our hearts. And no religious leader or political leader could thwart his plan. They are only pawns being moved by God for his plan. And so it is today. If we think that we can have any power over this king's plan or his purpose, then we make ourselves just like Pilate and the chief priests. Friends, this king ascended through uh, the death on a, through death on a cross and resurrection from the dead. Why rage against him? Why be indifferent to him? The only proper response is to hail King Jesus. To reorient your understanding of truth and to follow him in faith. There's a second thing that we need to consider, and that is that we ought to trust in this king's gospel. Trust in this king's gospel. The text takes an interesting turn here in, in verse 6. It's obvious that Pilate is in uh, uh, what we would call, he's in quite a pickle right now. Um, he hasn't found any evidence to prosecute uh, Jesus under Roman law, yet the, the leadership of his constituents are, are religious fanatics and claim that this man is deserving of death. If he were to set uh, Jesus free, then he knows that he would possibly have a riot on his hands. But yet, if he condemns a, a free, uh, a, a, an innocent man, he knows that this will be on his conscience and that he was the, the author of uh, a gross injustice. So in verse 6, Mark gives us a bit of a history lesson to provide the context of Pilate's plan. It says, at the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. So this would have been a little bit of a, a PR stunt for uh, Pilate over the years, that the Passover was the biggest uh, time of year for them, and uh, to to boost his clout with the Jewish leaders and his constituents, releasing a prisoner that they wanted free would have made him look good and maybe trustworthy that he was on their, their side. It would also help keep the peace during a potentially volatile time in Jerusalem. So in Pilate's mind, maybe these, these, these Jewish leaders are just a minority report. And if I ask them if they want to release Jesus, maybe his popularity will win out the day. Maybe the, the, the commoners will rise up and say, this man, we want him to be released. But verse 7 tells us of another pr uh, prisoner who is in Pilate's custody. 
says there was a man named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. So why was this man in prison? Well, he was an insurrectionist. He was a zealot who was part of an uprising against Rome. This was the type of person that Pilate wanted dead. This man represented every reason why Pilate was even in town for that week. But this was also the kind of man that was absolutely politically perfect for the Jewish leaders. The zealots and the Sanhedrin were strange bedfellows. They never got along before this. They didn't get along after this. But yet they certainly, the leaders certainly could use them. Anyone was better than Jesus for that matter. Now look at verse 8. The crowd um, came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them what was his custom. Now here's the moment of truth. Verse 9, Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? He knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed uh, him over. So in verse 11, the chief priests quickly take control of the situation. It says that the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. So here, the chief priests are so good at manipulation that they can turn this crowd in a heartbeat. The same people that were singing Jesus' praise five days ago when he came into town on a donkey singing, Hosanna to the Son of David, are now joining in the cry with the religious leaders here. Verse 12, Pilate asked them again, what do you want me to do with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Notice he puts it on them. And again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And just like many other leaders of our day, Pilate doesn't give a rip about what is truly right or truly wrong. He only cares for what is politically expedient for him. It's better to make this crowd happy, to boost his ratings, and get rid of this guy, innocent or not. Now in verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Like so often happens, politics wins the day again. But it's here that we need to stop and we need to analyze the irony of what's happening here. Politics aside, God is in the driver's seat. We could view this here as a complete injustice, and it is. An innocent man is going to death, while a man who is a proven criminal is now being set free. This entire vignette, however, is simply only an example of what God is doing on a cosmic level with Jesus. If you remember a few weeks ago, um, actually I think it was actually just last week, that we looked in chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, when the Sanhedrin asked Jesus plainly, Are you the Messiah? 
the Son of the Blessed One. To which, if you remember, Jesus responded by saying, I am. And you will see the Son of uh, Man seated on the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. So you have the Son of Man, the Messiah, on one side of, of Pilate. And the Jewish leadership wants him dead. And on the other side of Pilate is a man whose name literally means son of the father. And he's a murderer, an insurrectionist. Barabbas, bar, son, Abba, father, Barabbas, son of the father. So what's happening here? This is an example of the gospel. Jesus, the sinless, innocent Son of God, being condemned in the place of sinners, criminals, imposters, fornicators, thieves, liars, gossips, manipulators, and every other sin that keeps us away from God. Jesus gave his life for Barabbas, and he gave his life for you and for me. And what Mark is doing here is showing us that not only are we to see King Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah, but we are also to see the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, as foretold by Isaiah in chapter 53 again, where it says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone uh, that people turned away from, he was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, we all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. In late December of 2006, Julie and I were on a, a Christmas cruise with her family, and when we got back to our room to uh, rest for a few minutes before uh, before supper, I turned on the television, and I, and I, I could not believe what I saw. I knew that Saddam Hussein had been on trial since the beginning of the month, but sometime between breakfast and lunch, the trial wrapped up. He was found guilty and was already dead. See, being an American, um, I and probably you are not used to such swift justice when the death penalty is exacted. However, if you know anything about the ruthlessness by which Saddam Hussein ruled, this was a very fitting punishment. In the house of Pilate, however, another ruler was on trial. However, unlike Saddam Hussein, this leader, this king, was completely innocent. There was, there was never even a verdict ruled he was sentenced to death because of politics. And just like the, the Iraqi tribune, 
he was immediately sent to begin the process of execution. In Rome, before crucifixion, a prisoner was, was first prepped for crucifixion by being flogged. This flogging was absolutely brutal. The prisoner was, was bound by their hands above their head and tied to a post in which the Roman soldier had a whip that had three strands on it that was made up of, of uh, bone fragments, um, metal fragments, and little silver metal balls that would bruise you all the way down. When you were whipped, the bones and the metal would pierce your skin and stick in. And then they would rip it out. And they would do it again and again and again. The Jewish folks had a rule that there couldn't be more than 40 lashes. The Romans, they had absolutely no rule for how many lashes someone could have. They just did it to their own pleasure. It was so brutal that many times organs and bones would be exposed, and many people didn't even make it to crucifixion because of the blood loss. And this was only the beginning. And it would be easy to look at this scene and conclude that Jesus was a victim. But he was no victim. This brutality was planned by God from the foundation of the world so that you and I could gaze upon him as both the lion and the lamb and gaze upon the gospel, which is the power of God to save everyone who believes. This Jesus on the road to Easter went before Pilate, not as a victim of happenstance, but as the willing, obedient, suffering servant who lived, died, and would soon be resurrected for you and for me. Friends, let's look upon this king and look upon this glorious, beautiful gospel.